Furthermore, the equation E is equal to MC square. And here's the discovery. I'm gonna make him an offer, Cameron. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I'm your host, Isaiah Henkel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show lined up today on what smart PhDs do at conferences. If you want to get the full show notes for this radio show, just go to phdsgethired.com and enter your name and email address. You can also go to cheekyscientist.com to learn more about Cheeky Scientist and to sign up there to get updates on how to get hired in industry and how to thrive in your industry career. Today's show is going to start off with a show me the data section. We're going to show you fresh data on going to conferences as a PhD, networking, what you can do to get ahead, what you can do to make connections, to crack into the field of your choice. Then we're going to bring on a very special guest, Jason Gagnard. Uh, Jason is the host of one of the biggest and most exclusive networking events in the world, Mastermind Talks. Uh, very exclusive. We are talking about $10,000 a ticket. Uh, we're really excited to have him on and give us, because uh, he's going to give us some high level insights on how to network, how to break into a new industry. We also have a live resume review that we will do as well. And we're going to highlight a couple of career paths. Um, specifically, we're going to talk to Kristen Cedarquist about her career path. And we will cover many other topics during this show. So let's jump in with the show me the data section now. The first article we reviewed in the show me the data section is a Forbes article by Michael Simmons. And what it showed is that having an open network, as in where you are, the link between different groups of people, it's a significant predictor of career success, right? So in other words, network constraint correlated with poor performance, as in lower compensation in an industry, less likely to get a job, um, being evaluated poorly by your fears, uh, peers. However, having an open network correlated with greater performance in all of those areas. Uh, there's a nice graph that we'll put in the show notes. Just go to phdsgethired.com to view that. Another article by Harvard Business Review um, it, it showed that you are 34%, 34 times, excuse me, more persuasive in person, 34 times more persuasive in person. This was backed up by a report in Science Direct um, where it, it viewed the predicted effectiveness in terms of compliance of the other person, right? So when you're networking with somebody, you want to get them to respond to you. You want to get them to reply. You want to get them to set up an informational interview. It was predicted that face-to-face -face on a scale of 0 to 10 with 10 being being the most effective method um, in terms of their compliance, right? Getting a reply from a, a networking script uh, or from networking in person. Face-to-face, -face, so networking in person, the predicted value was 5.08. However, the actual value was 7.15. If you want to see the chart on this, again, you can go to our show notes, go to cheekyscientist.com or phdsgethired.com. So again, predicted was 5.08. Actual effectiveness, right, of compliance, of getting that next step in the networking process, whether it was an informational interview, phone screen side visit, was 7.15. So it went up. Okay, however, email, the predicted success was higher than the predicted success for face-to-face. -face. This should not surprise you, right? If you're a PhD, you think, why go to a networking event in person? It's not going to be successful. I can just send an email. And we tend to think that emails are more effective. That's why the predicted 
success rate of effectiveness for an email was 5.53. However, face-to-face was 5.08. The actual effectiveness, right? The actual compliance level, getting that reply to the email, getting that reply to your networking script when it was done online only was 0.21. Big difference. 5.53 predicted, actual 0.21. Okay, we, we also reviewed another Forbes article specifically on um, how to network at conferences, and they gave a lot of tips. What were those tips? Number one, don't attend every session. We talk a lot about this, especially as a PhD. Don't go to every academic talk. Instead, go to the vendor show, right? Meet the people that are working at the companies, exchange a business card, even if you don't have a business card from university, create a small one, right? Printing them online now, it's like $10 to get some, a really nice business card where you can put your, a little mini version of your resume on the back. Number two, never retreat, right? A whole day of information is exhausting. It's very easy. I, I do this all the time. I still do. I try not to. I do it less. But, you know, I'm kind of an introvert, so I get very de-energized at an event. So what do I do? I go up to my room and I tend to miss things. I miss connections that I could have made. So don't retreat. Just be there. Just being there in person um, is a huge uh, uh, predictor of whether or not you're going to make a substantial connection. And networking is kind of an art. You just have to be around. Just show up. Just be there. You'll bump into somebody. That's how things happen. That's how you can, how you can make sure that you're more likely to have an effective uh, or, or productive networking connection at an event. Number three, follow up. That's where the that's really where the networking happens. When you're at the event, that's just connecting. You meet somebody at a poster session. You meet somebody standing by the bar. You you connect with them. You build a relationship when you follow up when you network. And make sure you use social media for that. That's number four, social media. Um, you want to use that to follow up. And that's the easy part for PhDs because we're kind of introverted, right? Going there and connecting is the hard part. But once you meet somebody face to face, you just heard the data. They're much more likely to comply. They're much more likely to reply. So you have to meet them in person. And then you can do everything else behind the safety of your desk, right? The follow-up process. They've met you in person. They know you're functional enough to have a conversation. Now you can follow up and build that relationship. We did look at another Harvard Business Review article called How to Get the Most Out of a Conference by Rebecca Knight. Um, It has some great infographics. It talks about changing your mindset and really pre-introducing yourself. This is something we've discussed a lot, right? Message other people that are going to be at the conference. Set up some times to meet with them, right? Especially with a large conference where there might be a lot of people in the fields that you want to get into, people from companies at the vendor shows, whatever it might be. Um, If it's a small you know, networking event, reach out to the host or hostess before, ask them to meet you at the door. They can introduce you to people, pre-introduce yourself. Also be strategic with your time. You don't have to spend all day at a networking event or all night there. That's what keeps most of us from going. Instead say, okay, I'm going to meet three people, spend five minutes talking to each one. That's an effective networking conversation. Five minutes, let them talk about themselves and what they're interested in for four minutes and 45 seconds. And then deliver your elevator pitch, get their business card, and the rest will happen during the follow-up process. Um, These things are highly important. That takes us to the end of this Show Me the Data section. We're going to move on to bring on our first guest now. It's my pleasure to welcome Jason Gagnard to the show. I'm very excited to talk to Jason. Jason has been a great mentor and, and somebody who's just been fun to watch as he climbs in his space. He delivers 
and produces. And trust me, it is a production. It's a show, one of the best and most exclusive networking events in the world called Mastermind Talks. His official title is Talent Scout and Curator of Mastermind Talks. He's also the host of the Community Made Podcast. So make sure you check out that podcast. Jason was named one of Forbes' top networkers to watch. He is the founder, again, of one of the world's most exclusive events specifically for entrepreneurs and business-minded people, Mastermind Talks. His invite-only three-day live experience has a lower acceptance rate than Harvard University and brings together brilliant minds from various industries. Uh, Jason also hosts a selective and highly curated series of intimate dinners for business leaders, which is the topic of his first book, Mastermind Dinners, How to Build Lifelong Relationships by Connecting Experts, Influencers, and Lynchpins. He has been featured in Entrepreneur Magazine, Life Hacker, Business Insider, and Tim Ferriss' number one New York Times bestselling book, Tools of Titans. Let's jump right in with Jason Gagnard. So great to have you on, Jason. Thanks for uh, joining us. That is too long of a bio. I think in the future, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be cutting that one a little shorter. And I will say, just in full transparency, I've been, I've spoken on very large stages. I've been interviewed on dozens and dozens of podcasts. I've probably never been this nervous because when I came on, you were showing all these graphs and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just not an academic. I don't think like that per se. So I was like, oh my God, I need like, I have to like pull out the research <laughs> before I get on the call. So uh, I'm excited. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah. Thanks for being here. I promise I'm not going to ask you for any data uh, to back up whatever you say. We'll just trust you. Um, Cause it, I do want to say Jason is an expert on this and he's done a very good job before he even, he, he's been in the event industry for how many years, Jason? I mean, before he even mastermind talks like. Uh, so our first event we created was 2013, but I've, I've gone to, I've used to spend yeah. 40, $50,000 a year going to events, joining organizations, masterminds, you name it. So, um, so yeah, I would show up at like an event to, network and then Jason would just be there. I didn't even know <laughs> he'd be like speaking or something. It was, it was, uh, yeah, uh, is ubiquitous. If you start going to any of these, these business kind of events and there, there's a lot of them now. So I highly recommend starting to, to dip your toes into not just the academic events, but more in the entrepreneurship and business world. Uh, so, so you kind of heard my intro, Jason. I, I, I wanted to start by talking to you from your point of view. Now that you've set up so many of these events and you've had so many, you know, I want to say high profile people go right where it's might, it's probably harder to get people that are, you know, going to that exclusive an event to get them to network and to get them to connect and to create an environment where it's very open and they want to. So from your perspective, um, what are some of the things that you look for just to set the stage from the other side of things when you're setting up an event, right? Like when I go to an event, I know I got to do this and I got to reach out and whatever, but as an organizer, what do you see that I'm probably not seeing? Well, I think the curation is key. Um, you know, one thing that, that that I share a lot is that the the stronger the uncommon commonalities amongst people, the stronger the bond. So, in the context, like if I were to use entrepreneurship as as an example, you know, if I, I'm based out of Toronto, if I were to walk outside right now and meet a thousand people at random, four percent of those people would be entrepreneurs. Um, if I wanted to find entrepreneurs with seven figure businesses, they represent 3% of that 4% statistically, meaning that if I'm at a dinner or at an event with 30 entrepreneurs with seven figure businesses, that's a really unique opportunity. And there's, when you set up an environment like that, where it's heavily kind of curated, 
you really stack the cards in your favor when it comes to people actually being able to build genuine relationships. Because ultimately, we want to surround ourselves with people who are kind of like us. Um, so that's kind of the first thing is that that level of curation. Um, also, relationships move at the speed of vulnerability. So if there is a way to uh, instill that vulnerability, and usually it's, it's through um, the leader or the leadership level. Uh, if they set that tone of vulnerability, other people will follow. So sometimes it takes, or it could happen on the lower level, somebody who's just courageous enough to really open up in conversation. And I'm sure we all can look back at a conversation when somebody may have said something that was like, you know, their daughter is struggling with something or their spouse is sick with something. And then it just takes the relationship or the conversation to another level. Um, so trying to instill again, that, that curation process, and then also, um, that level of vulnerability, intimacy is huge. And then the one thing that we try to leverage a lot is, um, I guess, wow moments, I guess you could say. So from an experiential component, um, we try to make almost like once in a lifetime experiences um, because you build great bonds uh, over really unique experiences. Um, so those are, from a, an event producer perspective, um, yeah. an event kind of designer perspective, those are some of like the key pillars, I guess you could say, when it comes to actually building, wanting people to foster deep and genuine relationships and not forced kind of surface level stuff, which you, you know, you encounter at a lot of uh, events and dinners and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and thanks. So, I mean, I got three points here and I want to kind of dig into those because I think they matter for the other side of things too. Like you talk about curation. What you're really saying is the people that you're around really matter. And it sounds like a no brainer, right? But let me dig in a little bit more. You have a lot of PhDs here and we are like, look, I'm going to do things on my own. Like a lot of us got into academia, whatever else from the mindset. And, and this is the same for like a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs. I'm going to make it happen myself. Mm. Have you really seen like it'd be a massive difference just getting around a different, like if you want to change careers or whatever else, like what are maybe a couple of examples of just huge breakthroughs that you've seen in yourself or people by changing your. Well, listen, John Wooden has a great saying that you're the average, average of the five people you spend the most time with. Um, and there's another saying that who you surround yourself with is who you become. I mean, the only reason I've achieved any level of success um, again, in, in this environment is interesting. I'm actually a high school dropout. Um, but I've been rather successful in the business world. The only reason being is that I've, I've always surrounded myself with people who are one or two steps ahead. Mm -hmm. And what that does unconsciously is, you know, 10,000 years ago, we lived in tribes. Uh, so we all have this deep rooted need to belong and desire to belong because it's kind of tied to our survival. And the one thing is, is if you start surrounding yourself with people who are playing at a higher level, unconsciously, you push yourself to get to the level as quickly as possible so you can feel like you belong. So that's been a great driver for me for many, many years. The only caveat to that, which I'll throw out there, is that if you only surround yourself with people who are one or two steps ahead, uh, you're always measuring up. Therefore, you will feel like crap. So what you need to do is ideally, um, I have this like law of 33% uh, model or plus equal minus model, which is I try to spend a third of my time with people who are playing at a level or two above me and not necessarily just in the context of business, any area that I want to strive, I guess, quote unquote, to have success in. So I have people that I, I, I have in my peer group who are just you know, they may not be big names in business, but they're, they have an incredible relationship with their spouse or their incredible parents or they're in great physical fitness. Um, so I try to spend a third of my time with people who are one or two steps ahead in, in those areas. Uh, I try to spend a third of my time with people who are at my kind of peer, peer group because we all have a deep desire to feel understood and seen and all that kind of stuff. And then I try to spend a third of my time 
on some level, there's a, a saying by Kevin Spacey that when to achieve a certain level of success, it's your responsibility to send the elevator back down. So I try to set, spend a third of my time kind of mentoring people and, you know, trying to pull people up, I guess you could say, in some regards. And that's been a nice balance for me. But yeah, I mean, similar, I guess, to, to obviously, you know, the industry that, that you all kind of serve in. Um, in the entrepreneurial world, it's very similar. Like everybody thinks they need to do it alone. And anybody who's been successful on any stretch, um, you know, had a lot of support and me included. And there's a lot of actually kind of great studies that kind of reconfirm. There's, there's, there's the professional benefits of investing in relationships. There's also the mental health benefits and the long, like there's a bunch of studies. There was a fantastic t- study uh, done by Robert Waldinger. It's actually, it's the longest study in adult development history. I can't believe I remember this, but for this call, I do. It's the longest study in adult development history. It's been going on for 75 years. Um, and it's a Harvard study. And basically he did a tech, TED talk on the topic and their discovery, um, I think they, they, they followed 734 men. And I think a handful were still going on in the study. But basically they found out the biggest predictor of longevity is not your diet, is not your physical activity, is actually the, the, your, your social relationships. Um, I truly believe social isolation is an epidemic in today's society and it's showing up in so many areas. Um, there's a fantastic book called Tribe by Sebastian Junger, who he was a, um, a former war reporter for, for 20 years. And he created this hypothesis that he believed that the, the rise of PTSD wasn't necessarily because of, I mean, PTSD is, is tied to, to trauma on the battlefield, but statistically there's far less people that see any kind of bloodshed on the battlefield, um, than, you know, in Vietnam and, and past wars and those kind of things. But the rise of PTSD has gone through the roof. And one of his beliefs is that, there's this tight brotherhood or sisterhood when they're in the, in the military. And when they leave, there's that shock, that trauma of like not having that anymore. Cause in today's society, we're just so disconnected. Um, so there's so many different kind of cues there. So there's professional benefits for sure. We could talk about that. Like I've, again, I've had great success. A lot of people have great success investing in relationships and they're crucial to your professional success, but there's also the personal side too. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot there. There's actually one one more one more statistic. I'm throwing them out there now because again, I'm going to forget them for your group, um, and it really matters. Which is, um, and this is a, this to me was a, a bit of a shocker. Uh, there's a gentleman named Keith Ferrazzi who wrote a book called Never Eat Alone, very popular book. He wrote a second book called Who's Got Your Back, and he didn't actually publish this the results uh, of this study in the book. Um, but in conversation, and he confirmed it, um, when they were doing the the research for that book, Who's Got Your Back, they asked, it was about a thousand people at random, one question, one question only, who has your back? Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, 55% of those people felt like nobody had their back. Even more surprisingly, 60% of those people were married. Wow. So um, to me, again, like I think it's a huge problem we see in, in today's society um, and, you know, how you build relationships on that kind of intimate level for like your own personal benefit for like mental health and all that kind of stuff is, is very much, you know, transposes to what, how you build them um, professionally. But uh, I definitely want to, to, to show that there's much more to these personal relationships than just, you know, advancing your career. No, and I think that's, Great. And that's, you just gave the best takeaway for those of you listening, right? We, we talk about networking and building professional relationships. It's really easy to think that that's just for that end goal of getting a job, but these relationships can stay with you your whole entire life. And they should, because it's healthy for all the reasons that Jason just said, and and, and many more. Um, Who's got your back? I like that. Actually, the number one thing that we hear from all of you listening and new associates who come in is um, 
I, it was great to see that I wasn't alone. Right. I thought I was alone, this kind of stuff. And we all feel that. And then you get around the right people, the tribe, like you said, Jason, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. One last thing I'm going to throw out there is another one that's still top of mind. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm telling you, I'm no, nobody ever like jazzes <laughs> about these stats. Um, so there is a, a, a feature done by copy blogger, um, which is like a blog platform uh, on Aweber, which is a email marketing platform. And basically Aweber discovered, this is back in 2015. So you guys can find the article, but they discovered that they had one email subject title line that worked across industries and just crushed it. It worked for mail enhancement. It worked for selling cars. It worked for personal development, worked for potty training. And that open, that, that subject line was you are not alone. Yeah. So Again, that's it. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. All right. No, 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 no. Show. <laughs> seeing that. I don't know. I think maybe you shared that with me the first time. It's just amazing. And so yeah, it's copy blogger. Yeah. Deep, deep, like tribal in the past. Um, I didn't want to talk to you about the vulnerability thing, because I think that's something, especially here, we, we a lot of us struggle with in, as PhDs. We're a little bit more introverted, but also with the professional side of things, I'd say academia is a little bit more behind the times, I want to say, in terms of sharing vulnerability where like entrepreneurs it's it's almost like a very it's a topic that's discussed frequently vulnerability mm -hmm. etc so my question is what's the line like how do you go from okay talking and being vulnerable like disarming the person but like you're not gonna get on the phone with like a recruiter and say hey how are your kids doing if you've never met or whatever but you want to get to that point eventually so how do you start if you've never met somebody like how have you, how have you seen people start at your events or how do you start yeah, so there's definitely, and it's, it's funny you bring this up because um, there's, there's a, a lot of people disregard the importance of small talk. Uh, I did for years. I'm like, small talk is, is useless. I want to get right to the point. Let, let's get right to the meat of things. And that's always been my philosophy for the longest time until I realized that it actually does serve a purpose. I think it was in 2016. <sighs> there was an article in the New York times called the end of small talk, I think by Tim Boomer. Um, and basically he had this kind of philosophy that uh, small talk was not necessary. And he gave like two examples of these girls that were like in a taxi cab and had these super vulnerable conversations with these taxi cab drivers. And the, the premise was that like, it's the end of small talk. Now let's focus on big talk. And then the, the month after there was a Ted talk by a woman named, I think Catalina Silverman or something like that exact same philosophy, like skipping the small talk. Like I want to know like what keeps you up at night or like, you know, what, yeah. like what's your biggest fear? Like just walking up to a person on the street and ask like, what's your biggest fear? <laughs> and like, they were amazed at like all the response that they got because people opened up and they are vulnerable. But the one thing was that, that was funny about all these, these examples was that they never saw these people again. So you can be vulnerable with people on a, like a, a first time basis, as long as you don't see those relationships or you don't see those people again, because oftentimes you unravel yourself so much that you can't like the next time you see them, it's awkward. It's almost like I have not ever had any kind of uh, one night stand or anything like that. But like, if you think about it, you meet somebody and you become, you know, your, your, your full vulnerable self. And I've heard stories about like the next morning it being awkward if you see that person. And then usually like long-term relationships don't stem out of one night stands. Um, so there's stages of intimacy. And I've actually done a lot of research trying to pull out, uh, well, what are those stages? And a lot of the, um, I guess the research I found were more around um, like very intimate relationships, like, you know, just very intimate, like 
couple or partner relationships, not a lot on the, on the kind of social sphere. So what I decided to do, I basically got a bunch of different research and like pulled together this model, um, which to me really, really works um, and has been really kind of tried, tested and true. And I've, I've kind of tried to poke holes in it and got other people to poke holes. And basically, well, the way I look at it is that almost like uh, relationship or intimacy is almost like a funnel. And if you look at the top of the funnel, that's how people kind of come on your radar. So like going to events or like maybe you were introduced or those kind of things. So first there's this like the first top of the funnel is this like level of awareness. So you're aware of the other person's existence. They may be aware of you or not, but there's an awareness there. Then after that, you move into contact. And then when you're in contact, that's when you have, you know, that very surface level, um, you know, conversation and, and very much small talk and those kind of things. And then you move into an assessment phase. And this is based on Amy Cuddy's um, work. She's a professor at Harvard. Well, basically, she, she said that, like, you know, every time you meet somebody, um, you're basically you go through an assessment phase of can I trust this person? And like, are they competent, ultimately? Because if you can't trust somebody, um, you know, you're, it's their liability to you ultimately, right? I mean, if you, again, you look back to like the whole living in tribes, you want to surround yourself with people who are assets and not liabilities, right? And that's unconsciously what's going through everybody's mind is like, is this person, can I trust them? And are they going to be, you know, beneficial to me? Um, so, so basically go awareness, contact, and then the assessment. And that assessment phase, like that's where you decide like, oh, maybe this will just be like an acquaintance or what have you. Um, or if you want to go deeper, then after that, you move into intimacy. And intimacy is when you start to get kind of vulnerable and share like, you know, what keeps you up at night and those kind of things. Um, intimacy, like you break down the word intimacy, it's like into me see. It's basically kind of opening up and let them see, you know, what the outer world doesn't see, so to speak. Um, and that's where like, again, like the real magic happens when it comes to relationships. And then the, the final tier, which is usually what they found in studies is like your best friends, uh, is basically people who support your social identity uh, status, I guess, on, on, in some degree. So, you know, sometimes if you, you went to school with somebody and you chose academia and they chose like maybe the corporate world or they chose entrepreneurship, there's a chance you may not be able to like relate again, because you don't share that strong uncommon commonality. But ultimately, if you do support each other's kind of social status in the world uh, or in society, um, you can continue to be kind of friends or best friends. So usually somebody's best friend statistically or historically um, supports your social identity on some level. So that's the way I look at, wow. at these things, um, because, again, and without having that visual, um, people can discredit small talk because, again, they're like, it's a waste of time, what have you. But when you understand it in phases – um, to me, you actually start to see the value of it. So no, you can't, in my belief, you can't meet somebody and be like, you know, I, I, I don't know what kind of vulnerable question you can ask them, but basically you don't lean in with vulnerability. Um, because the next time you see them, you, you, you can't, when you, once you unravel yourself, you can't unravel yourself basically. So you, you'll, sometimes you'll do more harm than good if you try to be vulnerable too quickly. I love that. And, and I just want to say those first, those first three steps that Jason just talked about awareness, uh, contact assessment. Those are the three main stages for your job search. Same with the job search funnel we talk about. You're going to these events, you're meeting people, you're getting introductions. That's that first level assessment. Then you have contact, right? You have a phone screen, a recruiter, whatever. And then that final thing is they're assessing you. Can I be with this person eight hours a day for the next 20 years or whatever? Um, so great stuff. Uh, we have a question. I want to bring that on in a second, but I want to ask you one more uh, I want to make sure we get to this because I heard you tell the story about you going to networking events and it was funny. And you're like, I'm basically horrible at this or was horrible. I'd go to the event 
you're more introverted and like it's a struggle for you to make contact. And then once you do, you're fine because then you do all the follow up and building the relationship afterwards. And so we've been trying to draw this, this distinction between connecting and events and then actual networking, following up and building the relationship. Do you have any tips there on what you've learned over the years or what you've seen other people do at kind of like an expert level at your events? Yeah. So basically how they, how they make the most out of that kind of interaction post event. Yeah. How, how to connect and then how, what do you do afterwards? What does the follow up look like? Well, I definitely, I'm just pulling it up now because so the funny thing is I just did a workshop on this and oh. I've had people come to me and they're like, how do you do this? Or why do you like basically trying to dissect how I do things. And to me, it's become just natural, right? Just become like, this is the way I do things and that's it. So that actually for me to pull out and break things down into a system has been really difficult. So I just did a workshop. So I'm going to pull it up right now as far as, cause there are four things that I right. use um, that work really, really well. But the one thing I will say is like, I definitely identify to being an introvert. Um, and that's hard for people to believe again, cause Forbes called me the master more top three, I guess. I didn't even know it was third. Um, but like, you know, one of the top networkers to watch and all that kind of stuff. And what I've come to kind of realize, like, you know, there's obviously there's truth in introversion and extroversion and all that kind of stuff. But to me, what I try to put more emphasis on is, are you comfortable or uncomfortable in social situations? Because you can put an introvert amongst friends and they'll be like, you know, they'll be lit up, they'll be engaged in conversation, but then you put them in a room where they don't know anybody and it proves to be rather difficult. So when I have that kind of point of view, I'm like, well, you know, if I'm going into an event, how can I, I already know what I'm going to, I already know what I'm going to expect on some level as far as like, I need to prepare. I have an opportunity to prepare. So, um, you know, I know if I'm going to walk into a room of people, I'm going to have to, you know, introduce myself. So how do I introduce myself? That's something I can prepare and practice in person because when you do it on the fly, it's always, at least for me, a disaster, right? I start like mumbling on my words. I probably will go on a two or three minute tangent if I'm nervous and all this kind of stuff. So practicing your introduction. And there's a mutual friend of ours, Clay Bear who has, I think, um, he has this philosophy called the perfect intro. And I think if you go to theperfectintro.com, you'll find the website. Um, but he breaks down how to do it. Uh, and he, like the, the real basic framework that he uses, which I think is beautiful, it's because it's very plug and play, is I, or it could be I or we, um, but at its core, it's I help customer, whatever customer that is, achieve result, like what that looks like. So you just replace those things. So I help customer, whatever the customer is, achieve results. So for me, it's I connect fascinating entrepreneurs, right? And the whole purpose of that introduction, and he can go into it again, if you look at his work, um, but it's supposed to like create interest and intrigue so that you can actually kickstart conversation as opposed to sometimes you introduce yourself and you've, you've, you said everything. And then the person's like, okay, well now where are we going to go in conversation? There's nowhere to go. So, you know, you're going to introduce yourself. You know, you're going to participate in some kind of small talk. And you also know you're going to share your story on some level, like some portion. If you, if your introduction goes well, they're going to say, well, how'd you get into that, you know, that field or what have you. Um, so preparing these things in advance in my own personal story, I have like a 30 second version, a 60 second version, a three minute version. So I can be very flexible based on the, uh, on the context. But I think that helps me tremendously during the event. And there's another kind of philosophy. Uh, another friend of ours, Todd Herman's coming out with a book called the alter ego. And I think oh, it's, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a beautiful approach. Uh, basically he is a peak performance coach for like Olympic athletes and that kind of stuff. And one thing that he kind of realized, and this got solidified when he was in conversation with, I think it was 
Bo Jackson. Jackson yeah. yeah. And the whole premise was that Bo Jackson outside the field is like a sweetheart of a guy, all that kind of stuff. But when he gets on the field, he's like a monster. Um, and Bo explained it. He's like, for some reason, like once I hit my right heel on the green of the field, I switch into this like alter ego. Um, so Todd is elaborating in a book uh, on this whole philosophy that a lot of top performers have these alter egos. So mm -hmm. when I go to an event, like I may be like shy and timid and introvert and all that kind of stuff. But the minute my, my cue is the minute I walk through the door and I put my foot down, my right heel down, I switch and I perk up. I have, you know, my arms are open. I'm excited. And I just need to maintain that for like 30 seconds, 60 seconds. And then I'm already kind of in the zone, so to speak. So that alter ego thing has helped me tremendously kind of overcome that introversion. Um, so, that's so funny you say that. What up? I think it was Mastermind Talks 2014. I sat next to yeah. Todd. Yeah. First thing he told me was about this alter ego. He told me the Bo Jackson story. Really? And I was like, tell me more. And he's like, and then the first person on stage, I think it was you, and you interrupted him telling me that. But uh, no, it was good. Yeah, I can't believe he's finally doing the book. Wow, that's great. Uh, so one question, thank you for staying on. Uh, I want to bring on Patricia real quick. Patricia, if you want to ask your question before we uh, let Jason go. Hi, Jason. Can you hear me? I can hear you beautifully. Hey, I first heard of you at Mike Dillard's podcast. Great oh, podcast, nice. dude. <laughs> really good. So I want to ask something about what you just said of bringing your alter ego. So becoming maybe someone that you're not always like that. How aggressive should you be when you are networking? How can you... Uh, take the best out of the out of the situation without being too aggressive or should you be so aggressive in your network no that's a great question um you can you only have one opportunity at a first impression and i very much like the only, like one thing i guess i have in my favor is i very much play like the long game um and i'll give you an example of this and hopefully it's helpful i spoke at an event um that was uh in vegas two two years ago there's a speaker there named gary vaynerchuk and he's well known in the business community and he was on stage uh, and he was speaking and two people rushed the stage to go take a selfie with him. Um, and the funny thing is I was supposed to talk about relationships on the final day and I brought it up in conversation or um, in my talk. I'm like, if, if you rush on stage and take a selfie with somebody, you pretty much guarantee that you're not going to build a relationship with them uh, because on some level you're putting them on a pedestal. And when you put somebody on a pedestal, it means unconsciously you're not on the same level. And again, ultimately, we want to surround ourselves with people who are assets and not liabilities. But the funny thing was, is that at that same event, that first night, I was sitting at the back of the room and I didn't know Gary, but him and I have crossed paths on kind of numerous occasions. And I was sitting at a table and I was with one, a, a fellow speaker who actually Isaiah knows, and she was with me and Gary walked into the room and she's like, oh, I want to go take a photo with Gary. And listen, I'm human too. I'm like, Part of me is like, yeah, I want to go take a photo too. Um, but I'm like, no, I got to like, you know, play the long game, sit back, just let it happen. And I was sitting there. She went and ran to go take a photo. And then he was walking around this, this VIP table and uh, somebody was speaking on stage. And then he was kind of right near me. And then after maybe 30 seconds, he turned around, extended his hand and said, hey, I'm Gary. And I shook his hand and I was like, Wow. I know exactly who you are in the back of my head. I was trying to play dumb. Uh, but ultimately, like, that's how you build deep and genuine relationships. You don't just, you're not going to build a relationship running up to somebody and taking a selfie or really pushing conversation and those kind of things. So there's certain people who are quote unquote big names that I've kind of become friends with over time. But 
you know, I, I saw them three, four times in, in a, in a social setting. And I didn't say a word. You just saw each other's face. So there was, there was that kind of reference point, but I never really pushed or forced, uh, forced those relationships. I know some people are more aggressive and, you know, they have success on some level, but again, I'm very much like long-term. Um, and I do know as a fact, you can't make a second first impression. So I'm very, very careful when it comes to that first impression. So yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's weird. It's hard to put a line, I guess you could say on how aggressive to be. It's really whatever feels like most comfortable and natural to you. Um, you know, if you're an introvert, most likely you'll probably be a little more aggressive than you think. And if you're an extrovert, you probably should be a little less aggressive than, than you probably think or probably already are. Um, so yeah, you'll have to figure out kind of what's natural, but always keeping that, that end goal or that, not the end goal, but that long term kind of viewpoint at relationships, uh, I think is, is absolutely crucial. Perfect. No, that's great. Thank you both. Um, I want to do these couple of lightning round questions with you real quick, Jason, but I do sure. want to say, funny that you say that because the first mastermind talks I went to, I was like really excited to meet James Altucher and I was like, like an excited dog, you know, I'm like talking to him, like, you know, James is like very like, okay, get away from me basically. And then I came to like the second or third one and I randomly sat next to him and I was just like, whatever. And he just, he totally noticed. He's like, Hey, why are you so relaxed this time? <laughs> like, what life experience did you have that made you relaxed? Super, sort of like a vulnerable question anyway. So, so. <laughs> you get a second chance. I don't know. Um, Couple of quick questions here, and I'll, we'll let Jason go. So, Jason, what is uh, the current book or books you're reading right now? Oh God, uh, you know what? In full transparency, I'm not reading any books. How about uh, podcast? you listen to regularly? I'm not reading. So, there's a <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, I just ruined your question. No, no, it's okay. uh, no, well, so so there's a saying that reading is inhaling and writing is exhaling. Uh, I reached a point a couple months back where I was just like tapped out. I, I, I noticed this wave with me where I'm like, I can't consume another bit of information. I need to get it out. Um, so I like season two of my podcast was actually all about relationships um, was that kind of outlet. Um, so I haven't got back. I have to get like almost inspired and I'll go on like this book rampage or this learning kind of rampage for a short period of time. Um, so I can't think, I mean, one of my favorite books of all time and I've reread it a bunch of times is tribe by Sebastian Junger. I think it's a beautiful book. Um, so. And I'm just going to, if you haven't checked out uh, Jason's podcast community made, I just put the link in there. You got to check it out. It's really, really good. Okay. Let me try to recover just like with like three quick questions. Uh, no worries. Some, one of the worst pieces of advice you've ever received in the context of relationships just or in life. life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Honestly, um, I mean, probably the whole notion of fake it till you make it. And the alter ego thing kind of plays on it on some level, which is why I'm always, you know, very hesitant to share it. Um, but that's very kind of, um, I think there's, there's being open and transparent uh, as far as like where you are in your journey, like especially when you're reaching up or you're talking to somebody who's at a, you know, further along. Um, I think people underestimate how endearing that is and how we all have a desire to kind of send the elevator back down and oftentimes we try to try too hard to like posture and like position ourselves as like we know everything when we don't and all those kind of things um so i think like that's one thing i see a lot i mean just just in general again i was i was kind of taught that to like really posture and you know i'm more successful than i am and those kind of things but i realized that uh, a people on like on some level they can see right through it oftentimes um and i can see right through it now that you know that people do it to me sometimes um but there's a beautiful like there's this beauty of just being 
like vulnerable, honest, transparent. And there's that, just that endearing quality that actually makes people want to support you more or be on, you know, connect the dots for you or give you business opportunities or career opportunities and those kind of things. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things that stands out. That's the perfect word to endearing. And um, I think that's, that's great advice. So we're going to leave it there. Jason, thank you for your time. Really appreciate you staying on, man. This is great. Thank you everyone. Thank you for watching another great Cheeky Scientist radio show. We hope you learned a lot from our guests. We hope you enjoyed all of the different sections. If you want to get these episodes delivered right to your inbox, go to phdsgethired.com, enter your name and email address. Um, If you are a PhD interested in getting a job in industry, again, make sure you go to phdsgethired.com. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist, go to cheekyscientist.com. You can sign up there to get our resume guidebook, our resume template, and lots of tools and lots of uh, materials that'll help you get hired in industry. Until next time, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. (laughs) 